Good morning, good morning, everyone. Glad you're all here on this beautiful November Sunday morning. Um, for anybody that's new, there's restrooms down the hall. There's also a quiet room if right past those um, stained glass doors if anybody needs to take a loud kit or anything back there. Uh, a couple other things. Lampstand has been so gracious as to let us use this space. So I know I mentioned donations. If anybody has a donation they want to give, you can just put it in the office there or you can ask me after. We can do that. And then also we have some visitors from Faith Lutheran in Bloomington. They've graciously gifted us with some Bibles and hymnals and all some great things. So, And they're praying for us every week and sending people here. So if you want to say hi, there's Liam and Jenny from Faith Lutheran. So. Um, let's begin this morning with our call to worship, if you guys want to stand with me. Uh, in our liturgy today, we'll be looking at Isaiah 2. So if, I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold section. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. If you want to turn with me to song number four, we'll sing... Rock of Ages.
out, we have uh, confession of sin. We have Romans 3, 9 through 12. Just as, as context, Romans 1 starts off speaking to the Gentiles, the Greeks, and the sinfulness of that culture, of mankind. Chapter 2 introduces the community of Israel and the sinfulness of that. In chapter 3 of Romans, what we read here, it gives actually a, a direct quote from uh, Psalm 14, which we find Paul doing a lot, uh, borrowing from the Old Testament. So that's kind of the context of, of what this Romans 3, 9 through 12 is. This is the word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. And together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, you have given us life and breath and everything. Yet we, like Adam, have gone our own way and sought to hide sin from you. We confess our sins, cling to Jesus Christ for refuge, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And by your Holy Spirit, would you conform us to the image of your Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If you want to turn with me to song number 10, we'll sing, Come Thou Found.
In Galatians 3, which some call the Little Romans, we have an assurance of our pardon. There in Romans 3, we, we found the sinfulness that we're in. Here in Galatians 3, we have redemption in Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your redeeming love. That we, whether Greek or Jew, who's under the curse of the law, you've paid that price. We walk in freedom now, Lord, and forgiveness, and we thank you for that. We also want to take the time, Lord, to give a shout out to Faith Lutheran Church for providing us with uh, Bibles and hymnals. Thank you, Lord, for Liam and Jenny for making the trek down here and delivering them. Father, we also lift up the Scotland Church, uh, the group of guys that, that Kendall has befriended and is in contact with, and uh, they are praying for us, as faith is. And we ask, Father, that we would remember them in prayer as well as they begin their trek with a new plan and a, and a, new, uh, a new work for you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've poured out on us, Lord. Being unworthy, yet you make us worthy through Christ Jesus. Amen. Oh, sorry. There you go. <laughs> So here's a question of a confession of faith from the Orthodox Catechism. I'm going to read the question, and if everybody will, will answer, that'd be great. How do you come to know that Christ is the only mediator? The gospel, gospel tells, tells me, me God, God himself, himself began to reveal the gospel in the garden. Later, he proclaimed it by the patriarchs and prophets and portrayed it by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, he fulfilled it through his own son. You all can be seated. Well, good morning again. It's good to have you all here. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10, we'll be continuing our study through the book of Acts. And like we say every week, we're trying to search God's word and understand why these books of the Bible are written, why the information that is there is there, and how it ultimately glorifies God in the gospel. And so we've looked at a couple big things. We've, first, we've looked at this book of Acts, not as merely the acts of the apostles or even the acts of the Spirit, but as the acts of the risen Lord Jesus, who upon his ascension into heaven has poured out his Spirit and is building his church. And then we've also been looking at the kind of programmatic mission of this church, which is to be witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria, but ultimately to the ends of the earth. And we'll see that most acutely today. But last week we, we looked at Peter, and we looked at a couple miracles that Peter did. He healed a crippled man, and he rose from the dead a a dead woman. And so we looked at these events, these miracles of Christ, not only as confirming the message of Peter that he's about to give in chapter 10, but also showing us in our spiritual condition as spiritually crippled and spiritually dead. And we'll see today that from this comes spiritual life. And so we're in Acts chapter 10 this week. And I've been thinking a lot about this chapter, and there's so much in here, but it's in such an interesting package, if you will. There's a lot of interesting things, and we're going to end up looking at the whole chapter today. It'll probably be a two-part sermon where we look at one aspect this week and another next week. But there's some odd things in here. I don't know if you've read through Acts chapter 10 before, but there's visions, there's 
a, um, a sheet coming down from heaven with a bunch of animals on it. There's the Gentiles. There's another pouring out of the Spirit. So we kind of have to ask ourselves, why is this here and what does this have to do with me? But the answer that we're going to give this morning is that it has actually everything to do with us, but not in the way that you might think. Oftentimes when we come to passages of Scripture, we're taught to look at the Bible through the lens of us, right? How do I fit into the story? How is this passage about me? And on the surface, it sort of doesn't appear to be about us at all. It appears to be about these visions and these animals and the Gentiles. And so when we look at the Bible just through the lens of morality or through the lens of supernatural visions or even through the lens of Israel and Old Testament law, it can often cause us to misinterpret and misapply the scriptures. And so that's why it's so important that we look at not just this chapter, but all of Acts as the acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And hopefully we'll see today that this passage is ultimately pointing to the person and work of Christ and God's unified plan of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll read some sections of chapter 10. I'll try to point out as we go. I'll pray for us and then we'll look at the passage. So Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. And at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. And now we turn to Peter. And the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. If you want to turn with me to verse 27, we'll skip a little bit. Peter then meets Cornelius. He's, um, he listens to the messengers and goes and meets him. And if you turn to verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Then we see in verses 34 through 43, we see Peter go and proclaim this gospel to the Gentiles. He explains the events of Christ's life, death, resurrection, offers forgiveness, and this required response of repentance and faith. And then if you want to look with me at verse 44, we'll finish out the chapter. And it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, can anyone withhold that water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit? just as we have. 
And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we come before you this morning, humbling ourselves under your word. There are many things in this passage. Some are difficult to understand, but we pray that you would give us wisdom and clarity and Ultimately, we are relying on your spirit. We cannot understand these things of our own strength or wisdom, but we need the enlightening work of the spirit this morning. Would you help us to see the work of Christ in the book of Acts and ultimately in the gospel going to all nations? Give us strength this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So, a very interesting passage if you haven't read that or haven't read it in a while, right? Lots of things in there and big implications. And I would argue implications reaching all the way back to the book of Genesis and actually going all the way to the book of Revelation from Adam ultimately to us here now. And so this is massively important for us to understand this passage and to understand it rightly. And I think to just kind of see how jarring this would have been at this time... Think about us in this room, right? We are American. We're not Jewish, most of us, I don't think. We're meeting on a Sunday. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices. Maybe some of us had bacon this morning. Uh, Most of us are probably wearing mixed clothing, right? Mixed different textiles, things. So, all that to say, we're not Jewish, and we're not worshiping the Lord in the same way they did in the Old Testament. So this should cause us to sort of think about these things and how jarring this would have been for the people in that day. And this passage, ultimately, how we understand it has big implications, not only for us today, but how do we understand the Old Testament? How do we understand um, Israel? Because some out there would say that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, right? That we need to take away the Old Testament. It's sort of worthless. It was for that people. We're in the New Testament now. Some would even say that the church ultimately is plan B. So this has implications for us gathered here this morning. That Some people would say the church is plan B, right? That us in this room, we're kind of God's second plan. His plan was ultimately something else. And so we're sort of the last resort, if you want to say that. So this has big implications. How we understand this passage Acts chapter 10 and beyond. So, and Paul will later go on in the book of Galatians to say that this is actually, understanding this rightly is at the heart of the gospel. So we need to understand this rightly in order to ultimately understand the gospel rightly. So like I said, we'll probably take this in chunks because there's a lot in here. So first we'll look at this idea of the Gentiles being included in the church, right? This is a massive event in the book of Acts really in all the scriptures. But then we'll, next week we'll probably look at more of this idea that these Gentiles did not have to be circumcised or submit themselves to Mosaic civil and ceremonial laws in order to be welcomed into this church. So this week we'll look at the Gentile inclusion and next week we'll probably focus more on what was taken away. So, three things this morning and you can follow along with me in your outline if you want. First, we'll look at the preparation, both of Cornelius and Peter. Then we'll look at the proclamation of Peter. And then we'll sort of look at this Pentecost, um, this mini Pentecost that happens finally. So first, the preparation. This is in verses 1 through 33. The preparation. We'll start with Cornelius. Cornelius. It says that he was a centurion. So this is a leader in the Roman army. He probably would have been over about 80 to 100 people. And we also find out that he was a Gentile. This is an uncircumcised um, Gentile who did not submit himself to the Mosaic Law. He was also referred to as a God-fearer, if you see that language in there. But he was a devout man. It says that he feared the Lord and he gave generously. This was a man that feared the Lord. And he has this vision from an angel that says to go and get Peter, basically. And so we see his obedience, his devoutness, his God-fearingness. And he sends for his men to go and get Peter from Joppa, who we read last week was in this town called Joppa. 
So we see the Lord preparing Cornelius. And we also see the Lord preparing Peter, who is in Jaffa. He's getting hungry. He's ready for an afternoon snack. And all of a sudden, this sheet is lowered from the heavens with all these animals on it. Animals and reptiles and birds. And we're thinking, is Peter tripping here? Like, what is going on, right? There's this massive sheet coming down. And we see the Lord speak to Peter through this vision. And we have to understand who Peter is. Peter is first an apostle, but he's also a Jew. So he is a devout Jew. He is following Mosaic law, right? Dietary restrictions, the civil law. And so Peter here has never had bacon. He's never eaten anything unclean. And if you wanted to, we could go to Leviticus 11 and look at all the things that are unclean. (laughs) And there's a lot, okay? So it's all these different animals, birds, reptiles are all unclean. To eat them is to be unclean according to Mosaic law. But we see the sheet lowered, full of animals, and a voice speaks to Peter and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat these. And we can see Peter's hesitation. He says, um, No, basically, by no means. For I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And we see later that it ultimately takes three times, this vision occurs three times, for Peter to actually get it through his head. And for most of us that are familiar with Peter, this kind of idea of three is very common. He denies the Lord three times. The Lord restores him three times. So apparently it takes three times to get something through Peter's head. I don't know if you guys are like that. But But then the Lord reassures him with these words in verse 15. He says, what God has made clean, do not call common. So we'll talk about this later. But ultimately... In the, in the following verses, we see Peter go to Cornelius, they meet, and then in verse 28, we can see the sort of, the audacity of what this means for a Jewish man that follows Jewish Mosaic law to meet with a Gentile. In verse 28, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or clean. So it's sort of interesting. The vision was of these animals being made clean. But now Peter is sort of realizing the implications of this, that it's not just animals that are now clean, but it is the Gentiles. And we'll see the implications of that as we go. So it's not just food that is clean, that God is calling clean. It is also these Gentile people. So this is the preparation of Cornelius and Peter. And then we'll look at the proclamation in verses 34 through 43, the proclamation. And we'll see this follow the um, the pattern that is common in the book of Acts. If you remember from Acts 2, Acts 3, 4, 5, there's been all these gospel proclamations. And they followed this general pattern of these events, right? The events of Christ's death his life, and his resurrection. And then there's been this offer of the gospel that all who believe in Christ can receive forgiveness of their sins. And then there's been the required response to that offer, which is to repent, to turn from your sin, and to trust and have faith in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, to be baptized. So we see that same pattern follow. And you can look later at all the things that Peter says there, but it's the same pattern. It's the same, um, these events that have occurred, these objective events, Christ has died. He lived the perfect life and he is risen again. And the offer to repent and to turn to Christ. And so this is amazing that the gospel is being proclaimed to these God-fearing Gentiles. So through the book of Acts, we've seen the gospel proclaimed in Jerusalem. We've seen it proclaimed to the Samaritans. But now the gospel is being proclaimed to these God-fearing Gentiles. And so we can see Paul reflects on this later in Romans 10. And he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is ultimately a quote from Joel 2, which is very interesting. We might talk about that later. So... We see all people, 
as Daryl talked about, both Jew and Gentile. All are under sin, but all that turn will receive forgiveness. And then he says something very interesting in verse 43, if you want to look there. In verse 43, at the end of this proclamation, he says this. To him, this is the Christ, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That the prophets even bear witness of this one that will be, we could say it like this, a blessing to the nations. And so we have to kind of wrestle with this text, right? Because some will say we need to forget the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets, or maybe we need to see this idea of the Gentiles being welcomed in as a new idea. So we have to wrestle with this question. Did the prophets know of this one that will bless the nations? So we'll look at that briefly here. We'll ask this question. Did the Old Testament speak of this Gentile inclusion, or is the church sort of a plan B? We don't have time to turn there or to look at all these things, but there's many places we could go. If you wanted to look at Genesis 9, this is the story of Noah. Noah had just gotten off the ark, right? The waters had subsided. Noah is almost like this another Adam. He plants a garden, he plants a vineyard, but what happens? He gets drunk and sins, and he, his nakedness is exposed, much like Adam's nakedness was exposed. And his sons come in, and one of them comes in and doesn't hide his nakedness. But the other two come and cover up their father and, and, um, until he sobers up and repents of this. But you're like, Kendall, why are you talking about Noah? There's this interesting passage, we could turn there if we wanted to, in Genesis 9, where he says to his sons, he pronounces a curse on the son who did not cover his nakedness. But then he says to his sons, Shem and Japheth, Shem is the one that Abraham would come from, who the Israelite nation would come from. But Japheth is the Gentiles, is where the Gentiles come from. And he says to Japheth, may you enlarge your tent and dwell in the tents of Shem. And you might say, Kendall, what are you talking about? This is a very shadowy picture of the Gentiles being welcomed into the people of Shem. Very interesting. We could look at Psalm 2, where there's this anointed son who's given an inheritance a heritage that is the nations. It's very interesting. Isaiah 2, as we read this morning, speaks of in the last days there will be a mountain that is lifted up and all the nations will flow to this mountain. And we could even look at the prophet Jonah. Who is the prophet Jonah? He is one who is also in Joppa. That's sort of interesting where Peter's at. He's also in Joppa. He is also sent to the Gentiles. He is sent to the people of Nineveh. And he is also hesitant to bring this message. Peter is also hesitant. So we see these parallels between the prophet Jonah and Peter here. This message going to the Gentiles. And it's sort of interesting. There's not really any prophecies in the book of Jonah. But the whole book of Jonah is really a prophecy of the Gentiles ultimately coming in to this new covenant. That God will include these people in his saving promises. So finally we'll look at Abraham. Because I think this is where we see this most acutely. And in, Abra in uh, Genesis chapter 12. We see this these two promises made to Abraham. The first is that he will be a great nation. That from him will come many people. And this, they will be a nation. They will be marked by circumcision. And they will be a people. But then there's also this other promise of one that will come from these people that will not just bless those people, but bless the nations. So in the Abrahamic promise, there's this promise of one that will bless all people. So even though there's this promise of these select people that will be marked by circumcision, there's also one that's going to come from this group, Christ, that will bless all the nations. And we see this picked up by Paul in Galatians. It'd be worth turning there if you wanted to. Galatians 3 we see that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. What's Paul saying? In you, all the nations will be blessed is the promise of Christ, is the promise of the gospel one day going to the nations. And we see that being fulfilled in Acts chapter 10, that this gospel is going to the nations. And as we read in our assurance of pardon, that ultimately this promise is not just of Christ or of the gospel, but of the promised spirit. We read in Galatians 3, 14, this blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So there's not only the promise of Christ, of this gospel that includes Gentiles, but also the spirit. And we see that played out in Acts chapter 10. So that is, we've looked at the preparation of Cornelius and Peter. We've looked at the proclamation of Peter. And now we'll look at this Pentecost event in verses 44 through 48. We have this sort of mini-Pentecost occurring again among these God-fearing Gentiles. What is this saying? That this spirit, the promised spirit, is not just for the Jews. It is also for the Gentiles. Just as we saw in Acts chapter 2, the spirit poured out them speaking in other languages. We see the same thing happen here in Acts chapter 10. This is exactly what Peter quotes from Joel 2 when he says, In the last days... I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, both Jew and Gentile. This was prophesied in the book of Joel, and we see it coming to fulfillment in the book of Acts. And so we see that it is not about being the physical offspring of Abraham, right? It's not just about being Jew marked by circumcision. It is about being the spiritual seed of Abraham. As we also read in Galatians 3, what's it say? Know, therefore, that it is those of faith that are the sons of Abraham. It is those of faith that are sons of Abraham. So we see that in the book of Acts, that it is not just the Jews, it is also the Gentiles. That all that have the Spirit, that turn from their sin, that repent and come by faith to the risen Lord can receive salvation, this promise of the Spirit that was even promised to Abraham in the Old Testament. And we'll see that baptism is sort of a sign of this, of this being marked as the people of God, having faith, repentance, and all these great things. So this is Acts chapter 10. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we apply this to our lives? Um, I'll steal Jason's story for a minute. Jason was a part of a Bible study where they were going through Acts chapter 10 and they sort of asked this question, how do we apply this? And the question that they asked was, you know, how how is this passage applicable to me? Specifically the part where Peter says, rise, kill, and eat, right? And the sheet comes down. And the question that they asked is, what has God done to surprise you lately? What has God done to surprise you lately? And ultimately, hopefully we can see the sort of almost silliness of this question. It's sort of missing the whole point of what this passage is about. The point of this passage is not how God has surprised you lately. I don't know about you, but I haven't seen the vision of a a sheep being lowered down from heaven. That's not ultimately what this passage is about. It's not about us. That's seeing the scriptures through an us-centered lens, through a me-centered lens. I've even heard it said, someone once said, you're not really reading the scriptures until you read it autobiographically. That's a problem, (laughs) because the Bible's not about us, right? So we have to ask this question, but we have to understand rightly, how do we apply this? So three things this morning that we'll look at. First, that all of scripture is about Christ. That all of scripture is about Christ. Not only his person, who he is, but also his work, what he came to do. His person, who he is, and what he came to do. Both Old Testament and New Testament. Hopefully we saw that today in part. That all of the scriptures are about Christ. We could call this Christocentric. Meaning Christ is the center of all the scriptures. Or we could even call it Christotelic, which is a fancy word for saying the end of all the scriptures is this telos, which is Christ. 
And we see this in places like Luke 24, where Peter, I mean, sorry, Christ is speaking to his disciples and he says, all of the scriptures, both the law and the prophets, speak about me. This is all of the scriptures pointing to Christ. And so we shouldn't say we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. It's actually the Old Testament that tells us of this Christ to come. And the New Testament tells us of the Christ that has come. That that is where our faith and hope lies in. So ultimately, Christ is this unifying element of God's saving purposes, right? He is this one, as we read, this mediator between God and man, promised in the gospel, promised in the garden, portrayed through the types and shadows of the Old Testament, but finds fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. So this brings us to our next point. So if all of the scriptures are about Christ, this means our second point is that the church is not a plan B. The church is not a plan B. There are some out there that would say, God had a plan for Israel. That was his plan, but they messed it up. And so now God has to come in and fix things. And he kind of makes shift plans and he puts forward the church. And some would say that's not accurate. But, uh, sorry, some would say that's not an accurate picture that I'm drawing a straw man of this position. But ultimately they would all say that this idea of the Gentiles being included in this new covenant is not anywhere found in the Old Testament. And as we've seen, that's not true, that the church is not a plan B, but that it is exactly this promise of Christ. And as we saw, the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile and has always been God's saving plan of redemption. So from even Genesis, God promises that Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem, that Abraham will have one that will bless the nations. And we call this the mystery of Christ, hidden for ages, but now revealed. Not a mystery like, I'm going to hide something from you, but sort of like a mystery novel, if you will, where these parts are revealed, right? As you're reading a novel, these things are unhidden, or like a good movie that has kind of a mystery element to it, maybe an M. Night Shyamalan movie or something, right? Where there's these parts that are revealed, and it's not until the end where you see the light shed back on everything else, and you see the full picture. That's sort of what we're talking about, this mystery, these types and shadows that find their fulfillment in Christ. And so we can see that the Bible is not divided, that God's saving purposes are not divided. God has a unified plan of redemption. It's the church and the person and work of Christ. So the church is not plan B. And then finally, we'll look at the unity of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. In verse 45, it's sort of interesting here that Peter says that these people were amazed. And that even Peter was amazed that these Gentiles were not only hearing the gospel, but that the Spirit was falling on them. That this idea that all those who are far off have now been brought near. We can read this in places like Ephesians, right? Where this two people, where there was this dividing wall of hostility, has now been made one through Christ. And I think this is an apt word for us today in a time where maybe division has not been more apparent. Not only in the church, but throughout the world. And so for us as Christians, it's important to remember this idea of the unity of the Spirit. That for, for unbelievers, how we as believers are to treat unbelievers, we should, as the scriptures say, to seek to be at peace with all as far as it depends on us. So we should seek for peace, but especially amongst believers. We have been unified by the Spirit, as Ephesians 2 says. We've been unified by the Spirit. That is what unites us. It's not nationality or tongue or creed. It is the Spirit of God. So today, even though division and turmoil are all around us, let us remember this great unity that Christ has wrought by the gospel. In him, the dividing wall has been laid bare. And he has unified us in himself. And finally, I just wanted to read Revelation chapter 7 that looks forward to this last day where there will be a great multitude that are unified together. In Revelation 7, let's close with this. Verse 9 
says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then John asked this question, Sir, who are these clothed in white robes? And he says, They are those that have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This multitude is not an ethnocentric people. It is one from every tribe and tongue and nations who are made pure, not because of their work, but by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. May we, may we hold fast to that truth today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning thanking you for your mercy and your grace allowing us to meet together to proclaim the truths of your word, this story that was once hidden for ages and has now been revealed, the mystery of Christ, who lived the perfect life, fulfilled the law, and has died and taken the curse, as we spoke about this morning, not just for himself, but for his people, that by faith we might be found in him and be washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that we look forward to this gathering from every tribe and tongue and nation where we will sit and worship our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we trust in that work this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we will sing song number seven. We'll be singing Psalm 23. And we'll be singing it to the tune of Amazing Grace. So just think, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Doxology. 
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Receive the benediction this morning from Romans 16. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.